digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. Hello, I'm Kevin Gallagher, the host of Digging in the Dirt, and my guest today is Zach Lokes, author, educator, designer, and grower who specializes in edible ecosystems around the world. He also is the director of the Ecosystem Solution Institute and author of the book, The Permaculture Market Garden. And he's here to talk to me today about his new book, The Edible Ecosystem Solution, Growing Biodiversity in Your Backyard and Beyond. Welcome, Zach. Yes, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, you know, I found your book to be highly informative on many levels and a pleasure to look at as it lays out plans for us all to start and think small and then also at the same time, think big. In it, you say we all should be planting more than a garden in our backyards, that we should be planting an ecosystem. So in brief, why don't you give me the problem and now you have a book that's offering a solution. The book really came from spending time in many different environments, you know, around my region in Ontario and throughout the world and, and seeing a lot of similarities everywhere, both the similarities in various ecosystems in terms of what exactly is growing and how they function as wild spaces, but also just all the similarities in the human landscape, that cultural landscape that we live within. And it just felt like there was a lot of opportunity everywhere opportunity to maximize the underutilized space in our communities and opportunity to mimic these wild ecosystems and so achieve the result that they achieve which is a lot of balance and a lot of regulation of nutrients and water and overall maximizing of photosynthesis this is where this book sort of begun so to speak it's the it's the seed for it is is seeing that opportunity but not clear and what are you seeing as the problem you know and why why it has to be us doing an ecosystem in our backyard i mean a lot of the landscapes that we have whether it's farms or um what we have in suburban urban areas they aren't maximizing the spaces that we have and so you know with issues like food security in communities and especially now with the times we're having right now this is becoming more apparent um that it makes sense to start to maximize that space that's near to home that's around us so that you know we can see that potential you know a single fruit tree can yield you know 100 200 300 pounds of fruit um, and is able to provide that you know in small spaces right where people live and that's a sort of resilience that shouldn't be taken for granted in an uncertain future you know what it means to have a mature tree when a problem happens or there's a shortage in the global food supply and that tree is already planted, already growing, already mature, already has its roots deep and is already capable of putting out that sort of yield uh, in a given season. So this is the, the, the potential that you know, we can harness because the opportunity exists in these communities because there's actually very little um, that is planted in them. So you know, I'm sort of an optimist and I just see that as uh, you know, a blank slate or a blank uh, piece of paper, so to speak, since I'm, I'm an artist and a designer as well. It just, it feels like a, a, a blank graph page and we can start to fill in 
um, the, the benefits by planting edible ecosystems, by planting these highly diversified uh, forms of landscaping, but of course, in ways that are efficient and effective for us to manage uh, in a human landscape. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you speak a lot about ecosystem culture. What's that? That's sort of like the, the outcome of re-engaging with an ecosystem. So, I mean, I kind of would rewind there for a moment and say that, you know, we all came from wild ecosystems. This is like where we have emerged as cultures and as homo sapiens. There's a lot of really interesting connections to see in, in the, the traditional landscapes that humans came out of such as the, the wild fruits forests of Eurasia, where a lot of the fruit that we love today and we have in, in our orchards, this is where they grew wild as a companionship ecosystem in the, the hill countries in and about Eurasia. And so, you know, this is where hops came from, this is where apricots came from, apples came from, and there was a lot of biodiversity and they were companioned in a woodland ecosystem. And, you know, this is where humans drew a lot of our, our wealth from. And we, you know, we migrated for edible biodiversity. This is the, the word I really love to use is the, you know, we talk about biodiversity a lot. And, you know, it's been a, a big subject in recent years. And what about the edible biodiversity and especially that edible biodiversity that humans nurtured through the process of plant selection and breeding and domestication? Originally, edible biodiversity was in a complement, an ecosystem complement where different plants with different form and different function uh, work together to build potential. And this always drew humans in. Like we, we were, you know, pulled to this sort of diversity. And so it governed our migrations. It, it helped us in, you know, establishing our, our, our societies and it influenced our cultures and, you know, carried right forward. And, and uh, it, it's clear even in the, in um, you know the 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 fact that there was over eighteen thousand varieties of apples that humans domesticated that we had in North America alone, you know this is a testimony to our immense uh, love of edible biodiversity. So the the return to nourishing that habitat, what what I would like to to see is like the the true human habitat, which is being surrounded by edible biodiversity and being surrounded by all of the benefits, which extend far beyond just food, which is so fundamental to our existence, but also to, you know, the health and well-being that's provided by being surrounded by the different colors and scents and textures of a wild uh, ecosystem. In a time where the appreciation of forest bathing has, you know, good scientific research to show how beneficial it is for alleviating anxiety and depression and and uh, helping improve your immune system, you know, imagine what it is to have forest bathing happen um, and happen right out your door every day uh, as your kids walk to the school buses, you know, you walk along campus to your courses as a university student, as you take your break outside of your office building. I mean, these are benefits that are, 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 are far beyond just the fact that we have the food and the food security by having these ecosystems in and around our communities. And then it goes even further when we consider that so much of our economy is dependent as well on food and food plants and biodiversity overall. So, 
this return to directly just to bring it back to your your question because i know i went all roundabout there to the beginning that's this, great this return <laughs> this return to this um this this habitat this true human habitat and the direct nourishing of it is an ecosystem culture it's an ecosystem culture is where we recognize that we are dependent on ecosystem services from air purification to food production to the wellness and well-being from from uh, uh, the the flowers and the scents and the aromatic oils that they provide and the sense of of purpose that they provide but when we reconnect with that and then we start to directly provide services for the ecosystem as well then we get into an ecosystem culture where we're no longer working in a uh, a way where we see it as a resource but where we understand it to be fundamentally part of our human habitat and we're directly providing for it making space for it nourishing it with compost creating roles and responsibilities in our communities and our cities and our farms to uh, sustain it and this is uh, the, a, a paradigm shift so what you're saying is like we've actually the modern man the modern industrial man and all the and worldwide has basically lost contact with all that i mean there's there's movements that are shifting that already and we even like the pandemic has sent people back to the garden quite a bit but basically you're saying human beings need that because that's where we evolved from and we have to get back to it and that's it kevin but and i don't like to to kind of place humans in a, in a sense that, you know, we need to say return to the past necessarily though, because obviously the, the, you know, history is not necessarily peachy keen. There's all sorts of things that we don't want to go back to, but we need to sort of go back and to the future. We need to integrate our ancient primordial relationship with wild biodiversity and especially edible biodiversity into our modern context. You know, I don't believe in wild, crazy landscaping that you, you know, can't manage. I believe in profitable landscapes, efficient landscapes, sensible landscapes that integrate into the framework that we have in our urban planning and our rural planning. And I also believe that as a species and as cultures around the world, we haven't really found our true stride as stewards. And so that's something that we touch based on in the book, The Edible Ecosystem Solution as well, is, is what stewardship means and our role as stewards, which, which I don't believe we've really quite found yet. So more than going back, I believe we're still going forward and we need to kind of re-engage with some of the, the former relationships we had with, with wild ecosystems in order to really take that next step forward as stewards and to really build a resilient and sustainable community. So is that what you mean when you say we have the potential to reteach ecosystem intimacy? I really like that phrase. You want to explain that a little bit, maybe? Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, it is. You know, I mean, so many people don't know where where food comes from, right? And And so many children don't benefit from the educational opportunities that wild systems provide you know you can i mean you can teach poetry and economics and uh, as well as gardening from the relationship of you know flowers that cross pollinate and you have a production of a seed and the seed grows to a tree and it produces you know hundreds of pounds of fruit and thousands of more seeds 
You know, there's so much to be had here that we can we can benefit from when we really start to re-engage and build that that intimacy with the wild uh, ecosystems and with the cultural ecosystems that we can build and create around us. And it's when we start to really truly respect those benefits. You know, I, I have, I love vocabulary and I love different terms that we can use because I believe if we have the correct word, then, then we can really have great conversations about uh, where we can go as a society. And um, I also love the term ecosystem services and understanding that there's these very distinct services, these goods and services sometimes is referred to that ecosystems provide us. And, you know, they provide us fresh air, you know, they, they, but they also can mitigate the heat island effect in cities and they can reduce stormwater flow and they can help uh, reduce the, the ravages of drought. And, you know, the, they can help prevent pollution in cities too. I mean, there's, and there's so much research about all of this, you know, it's well established that uh, diversified ecosystems in and around human communities and wild ones, you know, far off in different corners of our globe are fundamentally beneficial for human culture. And it's when we really appreciate that, but we can't appreciate that until it's near to home. We can't really engage with it until it's out all of our front doors. And so I love planting trees. I'll plant trees till the day I die, but I want to increasingly engage with planting high impact trees, trees right where people live, trees that are gonna benefit people with shades, sure, with you know beauty, sure, but also with food right there and educational opportunities right there and trees that can help catalyze a movement because they inspire people around them to mimic the results of their neighbors and create monumental change in little meaningful ways that anyone can engage with. Cool. I'm Kevin, we're digging in the dirt and I'm speaking with Zach Lokes, who has got a new book out called The Edible Ecosystem Solution, Growing Biodiversity in Your Backyard and Beyond. So, you know, you're talking about land management, basically. I mean, a lot of environmentalists in the past, or even organic people, they would say, if you leave it alone, it'll be fine. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's more like, you know, mimicking and tweaking nature in a good way that makes it even more beneficial for not only ourselves, but for all the other species around. Well, you you hit the nail on the head there, Kevin, because, because that is exactly how I feel, too, is that we we actually need to engage with uh, wild spaces and with our landscapes much more. There's one thing I really truly feel, and that is that land needs people. We really need people. The more diversity that we have on land, the more resilient it is, the more beneficial it is for human societies and for all other you know, ecological entities on the planet. But the land needs people to engage with it. They need stewards to, to go into, you know, chop and drop material to create new mulch and compost, to, to harvest, to spread plants, to, you know, understand, you know, how to, we really do need people uh, on the land. And, uh, and, and, and people have always engaged with land. You know, the, the concept of the wilderness that many people have as this sort of pristine environment is so tied up in this idea that humans are separate from nature. And 
we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're part of the, the ecosystem. We are a fundamental part of the ecosystem and we're huge part of the ecosystem. You know, we've been, we, we're one of the greatest diversifiers on earth. And so when we talk about ecosystem in, intimacy too, and, and talk about this engagement, it's like recognizing that we as humans tend to think of ourselves as the destroyers of nature. And I'd like to almost change that conversation because if we can refocus on all the beautiful things humans have done, I mean, we are these massive diversifiers and we have been engaging with plants and animals and bacteria and yeasts and all sorts of things for you know, hundreds of thousands of years in various ways. And you know, we're a powerful entity for change. So if we can take that power that we have and that we, we have you know, maybe slipped up in many ways and we've created you know, vast acres of monoculture, but if we re-engage our stewardship role that we've already demonstrated is a, a great one in diversifying and moving diversity and creating edible spaces around us, we have a lot of momentum to recreate the face of our planet as one that's much more resilient and much more beneficial for all organisms on the planet, but namely humans, namely us. So, you know, we'll, we'll really be able to make a lot of great change. And we do that by, like you say, engaging more with ecosystems hmm. and maximizing again, those spaces around us. I want to bring it to the listeners out there, you know, more or less in the suburbia, right? Yeah. I can see this working in the country and then suburban and some people have a little bit of land. What you're saying is that our backyard should be more of an ecosystem than rather just say growing the regular tomatoes, onions, lettuce, and all that. It's our job to turn our corner into a, a, an ecosystem so that we can convert that traditional backyard into a, more than just a food garden. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely am on board to help see this happen in rural, urban, suburban areas. Um, the sub suburbs, like to get back to what I was saying, land needs people, like the suburbs then present this golden opportunity. In the suburbs, we have the opportunity to take this area where there is both land in abundance and people in abundance. And so it's really actually just waiting to become a, a paradise. It really is. It's waiting to become a place that is just absolutely abundant in edible biodiversity. And we could have, you know, boulevards with, you know, great big nut trees and we can have, you know, backyard orchards and we could have community parks with edible biodiverse hedges you know, bordering the, the bike lanes uh, and the, the green space that's left open for playing a, a game of soccer. And, you know, we have opportunities for neighbors to work together so that you can have a guild of plants that's maybe planted in the space as small as five by five. But then you can also see that that guild idea of different entities can be expanded to, you know, different yards working together as a guild where one neighbor, you know, has honeybees and another one has an orchard and another one, you know, is growing micro grain. You, there's, there's all of these relationships can, that can build on top of each other uh, in areas where we have both land and people and where the need is, is very great indeed for this transition. And this can, you know, help encourage change on, on either side as well in the urban and in the rural areas. It really is an exciting space. And one of our projects at the Ecosystem Solution Institute is uh, a project just on the edge of Winnipeg, Manitoba, 
uh, the suburban edible ecosystem. And it's a, a 2.8 acre uh, suburban property that's been completely transitioned into an edible ecosystem. So it's, you know, got fruit and, and nuts and berries and an organic garden and edible uh, hedges. And, you know, it really is showing what can be done with a piece of land and then working to encourage that change out there. And, and you can see that model working as initially, you know, neighbors are sort of looking, you know, not quite sure what's going on over there, but now they, they come by this property and they, they ask questions and they try the food and it's trickling out. And that's another big part of this movement is, you know, inspiring change, right. With setting an example and then being able to actually help um, catalyze that change further by providing, say, the suckers of, of raspberries that you know are great, or cutting some scion wood from a favorite pear and grafting it and sharing it, and, and educating people on how to actually replicate what you've done in your small spot, you know, your 25 square foot spot, or your three acre property, you know, and so in this way, you're creating an inspiration and a propagation and an education, you know, that, that moves outwards uh, little by little and creates that, that change uh, step by step. So give me a, a concrete example of the, like the 25 by 25 plot in the backyard of somebody in uh, suburbia. What, what do you want them to do the first thing? For sure. I, I definitely do that. And also in the book too, it, it actually shows, that's one of the fun spots in the book where it takes 25 square feet and it shows how to take it from grass right through to an edible ecosystem planting. Um, but certainly the first thing that we want to do is we want to remove the current vegetation, whether it's old garden or whether it's a lawn or whether it's, you know, weedy, a bit of a, a property, because we want to put in there what we want to see and allow its space to proliferate. So, you know, you can do that by turning and double digging the soil. And, you know, if you have a, a, a you know, an invasive grass, you can use a piece of heavy duty weed barrier or a polytarp and actually solarize the ground for a season to really fry it down. And what I love to do when I do that is I actually plant a melon right in the middle. So the melon spreads over top of the tarp and, and grows and you have a nice little melon patch for that first year because, you know, one hole in that space is enough for a nice melon. But then once you, you know, are down to soil, it's the process of building up a perma bed, building up a, a raised bed that helps improve drainage, helps return air to the soil. So you have a balanced holistic soil you know, that's roughly 45% mineral and about 25% air, 25% uh, water, and around 5% organic matter. This is the, the sort of the composition of soil as opposed to say dirt. And what's interesting in there is if we look at that and we go, oh wait, so 25% air and 25% water, that means that 50% of the soil has to be pore space, openings within the soil to hold air and water. And so that's why we build a perma bed or a permanent raised bed is to encourage space, uh, encourage structure in the soil so that we can actually rebuild what soil really is. It's not, you know, a compacted median that's sort of on its way to becoming a sedimentary rock, so to speak, in many cases, right? It's, it's a structure. It's a house. It's a whole civilization, you know, in uh, a single 25 square feet. Um, that has a lot of space in it. And that space for air and water is so important because that's what helps create the environment for soil life, 
which is the fundamental ingredient to healthy plants because soil life not only directly engage with plants like mycorrhizal fungi that are providing, you know, um, water and nutrients from further afield, you know, in exchange for sweet sugars from the plants, but they also indirectly are beneficial to plants by helping create pore space through tunneling and depositing micro manure. And for lack of a better name, I, I believe the, the most potent fertility out there. So we want to really start with the soil. And then once we do that and we build that up, we can start to design a, a micro ecosystem. And by that, I mean layers, you know, that's the first starting point is to understand that ecosystems have layers, whether it's a woodland ecosystem with large trees and medium trees and smaller bushes and creeping ground covers on the ground, or it's even a prairie ecosystem that has really tall grasses and then it has, you know, smaller sedges and smaller flowering plants and creeping ground covers, no matter what type of wild ecosystem we're mimicking, we understand that these plants are diverse, they have different sizes and different shapes. And when we balance them into a space, we maximize it. So we, you know, we're not gonna put a bunch of big trees all stuck together in 125 square feet. We're gonna complement you know, a plum tree with some chives for pollinator and for culinary you know, uh, 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 cuttings for eating. And we'll complement that maybe with some creeping thyme and we'll you know, have um, some other beneficial uh, plants mixed into that based on the design for the site. So like I said, the book goes into this again, but mm -hmm. as a snapshot, that's the process. It's, it's taking it one step at a time and, and, and kind of moving through those stages of prepping a site and then understanding, you know, what you want to, to grow in it and planting it in an organized, diversified way. Yeah, this book has a lot of information and we're probably not going to get to design here. He's Zach has given us a little taste of the, the design aspects of the book, but it's it's well, wonderfully laid out that way. And, and you're a great artist, by the way. I mean, the pictures are just incredible. And I, I see that you designed and, and did a lot of the artwork and the pictures and everything. So, I, I mean, I love the watercolors. It's just really quite beautiful to look at. But folks, you know, if you really want to know um, how to design, like say, a permanent bed architecture, he can, he, it's in this book, you know, you can, you might want to pick it up and develop a perma bed like that and also it has a really great little list of how to build quality soil i found you know it's a quick good hit on like eight to ten ways to build good soil so like, like zach was just talking about you know in your in this book the uh, edible ecosystem solution zach you you have a lot of succinct phrases and concepts in your book and i like to, uh, to use those as a way of get, conveying some information to the listener so why don't i bring up a couple of them and, and you can fire away and you know in brevity <laughs> but you know let us know what you think about you know some of the things you're saying in your book like i, f I found the idea of thriving and surviving interesting Oh yeah, for sure. You know, there's a difference between when we're surviving as people and when we're really truly thriving as people. And, you know, sometimes when we think about survival, you know, we maybe go to some modern TV show or we, you know, maybe have experience getting lost in the wilderness and trying to eke out our survival, you know, but I mean, I guess the way I would feel about that right now in this moment is if I am really thriving in my community and in my environment, I'm 
actually being engaged by all of my senses in a real way all around me. And they're, you know, pouring into me and benefiting me and benefiting my community in a real way. And we can survive by, you know, going to a grocery store and getting basic nutrients, you know, in the form of some canned food and some vegetables, which are, you know, potentially fresh, <laughs> as fresh as they can be. Um, and we can, we can survive. That's modern survival. But thriving is breathing the fresh air around the trees that are helping to pull the pollutants right out of the air, eating that uh, apple or pear right off that tree that is maximum nutrient density right there at its peak freshness and, you know, smelling the blossoms of the bee balm and hearing the butterflies and the bees and all of that just pouring through our systems, which again, you know, so much data is showing how beneficial that is. And yet we don't even have the data on the benefit of being surrounded by edible biodiversity in the context of what, you know, having a edible ecosystem throughout a community would provide. And certainly not an old growth edible ecosystem, you know, imagining many decades later of, of a community being completely uh, developed like this, you know, almost like look at a brand new suburban development and those few ornamental trees and new sod that's laid, and then go and look at a really older community um, in that same city where, you know, the ornamental trees and various plants that have been planted are much, much, much larger now, and even some of them senescing. Imagine one day when someone can walk through a older community like that, except for it has been intentionally planted to maximize edible biodiversity and just the immense amount of thriving that will be happening there, you know? So that sort of dovetails with your idea of ecological health care, that this is all good for us and our health. And even, I love the, uh, you mentioned it before, forest bathing, the Shinrin-yoku. Um, yeah. And so it's like that they, people go out to the forest in Japan because they know they come back feeling a whole lot better. And so you're saying if we surround ourselves with all this stuff, all this fruit and vegetables and, and things that are growing around us that we can reach up and grab a, a plum or we can grab a, a nut that we're going to be not only healthier, but feel better about ourselves. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, I mean, this is, this is preventative medicine at the max, you know, we're not only getting those nutrients, but we're getting, you know, that whole experience that's just flooding into our, our pores and into our system and just boosting us in so many different ways. Hmm. So you're really into change and you're trying to you know, have an impact in that regard. So you say change has many stakeholders. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's one of my favorite ideas of, of conversation, Kevin, because we all have a role to play and like everybody has something so meaningful to contribute. And um, sometimes I'll hear people say, oh, well, I, I don't have land or, you know, I don't have time. Or also sometimes we just talk about, you know, the, the difference in urban and suburban and rural. And we can create this change everywhere because if, if everyone actually plants a tree, that's a whole lot of trees. And if we look at the different contexts of say a school that decides that they're gonna put in some new shade trees and they decide to opt for mulberries or they decide to opt for um, you know, a new hedge along one of, their, one of their streets that has various fruits and herbs and, and berries along it, you know, that's a stakeholder in it. And, and they can tap into the idea of a, of a living laboratory and outdoor education and they have a, a stake in it 
for many other reasons for the school and for their, their, you know, their curriculum development and all sorts of amazing ways that that can be, be utilized, but also they're helping contribute to creating edible biodiversity in our communities with all of these ecosystem services that, that we've talked about. And then a homeowner, you know, can be a stakeholder that's, you know, engaging and planting in their yard to benefit their family, to have fresh fruit for their, their table, you know, and a farm can engage with it by, you know, uh, putting in edible hedges, edible biodiverse hedges in between their fields of, of cash crop in order to have a resilient long-term um, productivity in the land that, you know, can help them transition to not having all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. So these are very different scenarios, and yet they're all contributing both to their own well-being and resilience in various ways that aren't um, always the same, and also uh, contributing to the overall movement towards increasing, you know, global ecosystem services within locals and within regions. And this is, this is all the stakeholders that we all have our, 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 you know, our foot in the, in this, in this kind of movement forward. But what's really neat to see too, is how these various um, scales can interact and these different areas can interact. So in some respect, the farm has the land you know, if you can get a thousand acre farm or a 500 acre farm or even a hundred acre farm to transition to a highly biodiverse productivity, like an agro ecosystem, I mean, this is really beneficial for climate change, for food security in the community, for just really, you know, helping to keep the water clean on the farm, which contributes to the water pollution down, down river. But at the same time, that farm, you know, it's going to have a harder time transitioning because there's more risk involved when it's um, a larger transition project. And when we look at what happens in a small uh, yard where somebody, you know, can play around with a guild design or maybe trial a new type of fruit and they can come up with something that works really nicely, in their case, it's a very low risk in that transition. And so what happens when people in urban and suburban areas, um, you know, are trialing new fruits and new berries and seeing which ones are more disease resistant and creating complements of herbs and berries and fruits that work well together, you know, that are site suitable, regionally site suitable, locally a great complement of plants, and they become these designers on this smaller scale. And then they actually can start to maybe share the idea and some of the, even the plant material to a more medium scale. And then you have a suburban grower that's trialing these same ideas developed by the small urban grower, but are maybe on three acres and helping propagate out that raspberry more and helping, you know, take cuttings from that pear and grafting it and spreading and creating maybe a micro, a nursery and trialing these ideas on a slightly larger scale. And then this can inspire, you know, the farmer and they can actually see examples of how, you know, this design has worked on maybe a hundred feet. And, you know, once you get something working on a hundred feet, it really can uh, be proliferated to thousands and thousands and thousands of feet. So this is that, the kind of full circle of that, that stakeholder um, concept is how we all have a role to play in our different places and we all have various benefits and then we can also start to bridge that urban rural divide and really start to make really big strides together by owning our scale and the opportunity that exists on that scale. So that's why you say agriculture land is the largest space in need of regenerative management. I mean 
you just said that you know 500 acres or a thousand acres i mean is there such a, a thing out there in, in america or canada that there's a, that large a space that's uh, switching over to some regenerative management i mean there are definitely large farms that are, are taking on um you know better soil principles you know more cover cropping you know and there's quite large farms on a multi-hundred acres that are you know creating civil pasture and definitely integrating uh, trees with crops and trees with livestock. But I haven't seen yet really large projects that are engaging with the sort of diversity that we're talking about. But I believe that it's coming. And it is definitely something that is on the horizon. And, you know, many people have their minds on this right now, because like I said, it's in our marrow. It's in our our deepest primordial um, <laughs> existence. This 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 draw to having more diversity, and you know, on large farms, um, I believe, and 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 I put this out a lot in my in my first book, the Permaculture Market Garden, that for the larger farms, it comes with actually simplifying and focusing your diversity, and really taking steps to engage with. Um, very distinct perennial cash crops alongside your annual cash crops. And that a lot of other diversity comes in around the edges when you, when you focus on a, a really nice selection of, of both annuals and perennials and animals as well sometimes. And, um, and we, can, we, you know, we, can, we can create that change. You know, for large farms, what we need is understanding that you can't say, hey, let's do this completely different and let's not use any of your equipment that you have. I mean, this, we have to work with what we have. We have to work with the machines that are, that are out there and work with the way that landscapes are currently laid out. And when we create transition plans that embrace you know, our, our current mode of operations and show how it can move forward, then we have a roadmap to success. I'm just curious about whether you think where this change is going to come from, because it seems like a tall order in a lot of ways. Is it going to come from one little guy after another doing it or a gal? And I mean, because I don't see politicians embracing this kind of stuff. I mean, they can't even, they can't agree on anything here in the United States. I don't know about Canada. And so I can't see implementing something like this in cities or towns or, or certainly nationwide here in the United States. So it, you must feel that it's coming from individuals one at a time. It's like um, we had Doug Tallamy on here with his Nature's Best Hope, and he thinks it's definitely, you know, he wants a, a network of backyards that are, you know, basically where everybody has control of that yard and, and you can get some stuff done. You know, I, I believe that, that change is going to come from every level and that, you know, we're, this is what we're already seeing in different ways and that we do need all the different levels. And yes, like fundamentally, the edible ecosystem solution is about, you know, you picking up a, a shovel and planting 25 square feet. That's the call to action is plant a fruit tree, a high impact tree in your yard, or even better yet, make it a 25 square foot edible ecosystem, something that can fit in any yard. And then, and then nurture that, nurture that and inspire others. Because if we all did that, you know, we would actually have massive change. And this would start to influence 
uh, the bigger players around us in politics and in business. But I also think that when it comes to business, um, you know, it's about showing how edible biodiversity can be, you know, profitable and, and you know, good for the bottom line. And this is also true because uh, it is, you know, like a, a highly diversified farm is more resilient in the droughts that are being faced across the world right now. So this is case in point. And, and when we create that step-by-step step, and we also show the profitability, the other thing I think is someone wise once told me that, you know, if you really want to make change in government, you have to give them policy. You know, you have to write it up and just provide it to them. You know, politicians don't make the kind of policies that we want for a, you know, an ecosystem movement, for a new cultural shift. You know, people who understand what's needed need to make those policies and then allow some politician to move that forward, you know, get behind that agenda. But certainly we can't wait for that to be our, our main way of moving forward. You know, we never have as human cultures and, and we never will have that as our only way of moving forward. We can all pick up a shovel, plant a tree. It'll immediately benefit us and it'll help move and shake our community because people will see it flowering in spring. They'll be inspired. They'll reach over the fence and they'll share that sweet plum with you. And then you can hand them a cutting and you can tell them, hey, this is how you plant this right. And they'll do it. You know, I've seen it many, many, many times. They'll do it. And little by little, our communities will turn to be something much more abundant, edible and beautiful. We've been speaking to Zach Lokes today here on Digging in the Dirty as a brand new book out called The Edible Ecosystem Solution, Growing Biodiversity in Your Backyard and Beyond. Thanks for joining me, Zach. Hey, it's been a pleasure, Kevin. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You have been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org. And now all Digging in the Dirt interviews can be found on Spotify.